Dear Heavenly Father, uh, you've been so kind to this ministry for so long. You've brought us through so many opportunities and continue to grow us. We're thankful for everything we get a chance to do in your name. And whatever success comes, we know is a matter of uh, your will. But we also ask, Father, that you would give us success. You'd give us the, the blessing of encouragement along the way as we do the work you give us to do. And in particular in these classes, that's the heart of what we do, Father. We endeavor to teach your word in an accurate way according to your will and according to uh, what the uh, this text itself says. And uh, it's in these moments, Father, that we really do what we're called to do. And so I do pray you'd continue as you have been and showing me what you care for me to say and correcting my errors along the way and giving those who hear the opportunity to benefit. Uh, Father, we pray tonight, especially in the book of Romans, that you would give me clarity, uh, that you'd give the text clarity in the hearts of those who hear that you would uh, bind our hearts to it so that we would never forget it, use it as our tool to evangelize as well as to live according to your will, to please you in all that we do. Just let this word work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. I feel like I need to clarify some of what we were in at the very last part of last week, and that will help, I think, make sure that you're in the right place to move forward with me and what we're doing for the rest of 4 tonight, chapter 4. Probably not a bad place to start is to look at that structure of Romans chart that I handed out early in the class. We are still in chapter 4, and on this chart, that is the Old Testament proofs. We're working through a three-chapter section, as I have it divided there, where Paul is introducing the idea of righteousness in a certain form, according to how God provides it. And one of those chapters is devoted to proving that his ideas are not novel. They come out of Old Testament theology. They're a continuation of what God has done from the beginning. Paul's trying to prove three basic points in this chapter. First, he has to prove that salvation has always been a matter of faith and not works, and he uses Abraham as that example. That's where we were at the beginning of the, of the chapter. That Abraham was credited with righteousness because he believed in God to keep a promise concerning a future son. He wasn't credited on the basis of works, and Therefore, what Abraham proves is that the way to righteousness has always been on the basis of faith. He is therefore Paul's example to prove that salvation by faith is not a new idea. It's been around since Abraham. Secondly, Paul proved that the means to salvation didn't change after the law came to be for Israel. And he uses the example of David from the Psalms, where David wrote that a blessed man is the one who has his lawless deeds forgiven and his sin debt covered. So once again, you see the scriptures testifying that blessedness, which is a way of saying your, your righteousness before God, is according to God's mercy only. And because David lived after the law, his example proves that the law's arrival didn't alter the plan. So David proves that salvation by faith alone has never changed. And then thirdly, Paul had to prove that God made faith the means to salvation so that both Jew and Gentile could receive that mercy. And to prove his point on this third issue, he returns to the example of Abraham in verse 9, asking, when was Abraham circumcised? So circumcision was commanded under two of the five covenants God gave to Israel. Two of the five covenants that God gave to Israel had a requirement for circumcision. The Abrahamic covenant, which came first, and the Mosaic covenant as well. The Abrahamic covenant established Jewish identity. In that covenant, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And as such, it was like a Jewish birth certificate, I said. It demonstrated that you were in the covenant that made you Jewish. 
It was performed at eight days because it did not depend on an individual's agreement. Every child born to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was party to the covenant at birth. Circumcision was the sign of that covenant. If a child was not circumcised, we were told last time, you remember, it said he broke the covenant. You can't break it unless you're already in it. So from birth, you're in it. At eight days, you are getting the sign of it. If you don't take the sign of it, you're breaking the covenant. And as such, they were cut off from the Jewish nation. The Mosaic covenant also had requirements for circumcision. They're spelled out both in Exodus and in Leviticus. Obviously, Jewish males were already commanded to be circumcised by the time the law came along. That was already being practiced. But under the Mosaic law, Gentiles who wanted to join in the commonwealth of Israel were also to be circumcised according to the law. That was not required under the Abrahamic covenant. Under the Abrahamic covenant, it was only someone who resided in your household that needed to be circumcised. But someone who simply wanted to attach themselves to the nation of Israel as a proselyte did not have to be circumcised in the way that the law now did require. So circumcision became a way for Gentiles to submit themselves to the law of Israel, to agree to be party to it. That's why Paul warns in his letter to the Galatians that if they were to take circumcision, they were obligating themselves to keeping the whole law. That fact, the fact that circumcision is in both covenants, is what may lead to a question which Paul is answering here. That is, must a Gentile become a Jew before they may be included in the promises of the covenants? And to address that point, Paul asks, well, when did Abraham receive his circumcision? Or when did he receive his declaration of righteousness? Was it before or after he got circumcised? And the answer is, he was declared righteous before He was circumcised. And Paul says that proves that salvation does not depend on being Jewish. Abraham didn't have the sign of the covenant, yet he was being declared righteous. So therefore, Paul concludes that Abraham serves as an example. He calls him a father, but in the sense of the Jewish mindset, a father becomes the model or the example for the sons, so to speak. So he says he is a father of faith, an example of faith, to both Jew and to Gentile. His faith preceded his entry into that covenant. Therefore, he's an example to all mankind, both to those who descend from him and to those who don't. Any man or woman who repeats Abraham's example of faith receives the same outcome he did, a heavenly credit of righteousness. So today, you and I, we are entering into the new covenant by faith because the content of God's promise has now been expanded to the fullness of Christ. We see the whole picture of what God is promising now, so that's the content of our promise, the new covenant. Abraham received a promise that had a lesser content, but his same object of his covenant is the same object of ours, and that is, what is our object of faith? The faithfulness of God. We have a content, a promise with certain content. He had a promise with certain content. But in both cases, where are we placing our faith? It's in the promiser, the one who is making the promise. So we too place our faith in the same place he did. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're betting on that, that faithfulness of God. So like Abraham, we're justified by our faith. But the promise God gave us in the new covenant holds greater content concerning the God's plan of redemption than what he gave to Abraham. That's all that differs. So the process works the same. We got a promise. We believe in the one who made the promise. We receive the credit of righteousness that Abraham received. Now, following your faith, you continue to follow Abraham's example in the sense of taking a sign. By faith, we receive the sign of our faith, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
the circumcision of the heart. That's the sign you receive as a part of your covenant. Your spirit baptism happens without any action on your part, since it is accomplished by the Spirit at the moment of your faith. In the same way that the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was given to an infant who had no choice in the matter and did not elect to receive it, Similarly, you don't choose to enter into this covenant. Your father brings you into it. And as you come into this covenant, you are circumcised in the heart, as the Bible says. That circumcised heart is the new life you have in Christ, which then promotes or produces in you the confession of faith and all that comes with it. You're born again. Later, after all that's happened, we give our testimony through water baptism, which is our public witness of what has already happened in our heart by the Spirit. So you're not saved by the water part. That's simply something we do as a testimony in obedience to Christ. All right, so that's about where we left off. And in the last part of the chapter, Paul refutes once again that the law's arrival and its requirements for circumcision did not change the rules. So when the law came into being and it included circumcision as a requirement, that wasn't changing anything God was doing for salvation's sake. Remember I said the Mosaic Law also commanded circumcision. That fact suggested to at least some Jews in Paul's day that the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant were to be obtained now through the law. That what God had promised through the first covenant and made a sign through circumcision over it, now when that sign shows up in the next covenant, or so they thought, the assumption was maybe this next covenant is expanding the rules from the first one. And now we have to do the law to get what was promised to Abraham in the first covenant. They said one must enter into the law to receive the blessings. This is where the Judaizers hung their hat in the first century. This is why they would go around after Paul was, was wherever, telling those in the cities that Paul visited, oh, Paul didn't tell you the whole story. It's not just by grace. You also have to be Jewish first because it's part of a Jewish covenant. And so that's what Paul had to refute. So now that leads Paul to giving further argument on this point. That's where we pick up verse 13. He says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law. But through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. Now, as we read this section, I want you to pay attention to his vocabulary for a minute. He mentions the promise to Abraham and he mentions the law. The promise to Abraham refers to the Abrahamic covenant, where God made a promise to that man. The law, of course, refers to the Mosaic Covenant. So the Abrahamic Covenant was a one-way grant where the blessings that God said Abraham was going to have, God had just given those to Abraham as a promise to him, as a matter of faith, without any conditions. But the Mosaic Covenant was a two-way agreement where the blessings that God promised to Israel were only available if they earned them through the works of the law. And if they did not keep the works of the law, they weren't going to receive those blessings. Both of them required circumcision, which is that mark of Jewish identity in the first case, or a submission to the law in the second case. So then Paul, having brought up those two issues, he then talks about heirs. Now, in the covenant God spoke to Abraham, he made promises to Abraham and to his descendants. You can see that in Genesis 15. Likewise, when God gave the Mosaic Covenant hundreds of years later, he made an agreement, not only with those Jews, but all future generations of Jews. So you see the questions are starting to merge here, if you're keeping track of what I'm saying. Are the heirs of the covenant that God spoke about 
heirs of one covenant or heirs of the other covenant or heirs of both covenants. There's this confusion building in the minds of some as to whether or not when God spoke first to Abraham and made promises and then later to Israel and gave them promises of a different sort, are they all part of one continuous stream of thought so that now they're all combined or do they separate somewhere and how? Paul's arguing, of course, for a separation. But that begs the question, how can you be sure, Paul? How can we say that they weren't combined? Since both covenants commanded circumcision, which covenant is responsible for delivering the promises God gave to Abraham? Or let's ask it a different way. By which of those two covenants does he intend to fulfill his promises? We know the answer is Abraham, the first one, of course. The problem is from those who look at it from a Jewish point of view, the Abrahamic covenant was followed by another one. And they might ask, if the Abrahamic covenant was enough, why have another one after that? Paul answers that question in Galatians, but in the meantime, we're looking at it here. Did God intend for Abraham's descendants to keep the law in order to receive the promises that he gave to Abraham earlier? And you might even add one more question. Did God add circumcision to the law so that the two covenants could work together to bring about the promises? To this, Paul says plainly in verse 13, that God's promises to Abraham were to be obtained in the way Abraham obtained them. That is, by faith alone and not by the law. So in Genesis, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be heirs of the world. God made a grant to Abraham. That grant was of land and a prosperity for that people in that land. And he says that promise would be Abraham's inheritance. He'd be able to hand it down throughout generations to those who followed him. Just like any other inheritance. It would be handed down. Earlier, Paul taught in this letter that Abraham's descendants are those who share in his faith. So... The connection between Abraham and those who will be eligible to inherit his promises is a connection that is spiritual, not physical. It's by those who are of the faith of Abraham that will be the heirs of what Abraham received. So when Abraham received a promise and he put his faith in it and he believed in God, God then established that that promise would have a life of its own. It would move down past Abraham and be shared by all who share in his faith. But Paul says... Having done that with the Abrahamic covenant, if those blessings were later incorporated into a covenant of law, then they could no longer be on the basis of a promise. He says in verse 14, if those who are Abraham's heirs, remember that's a term that means people who repeat the faith of Abraham. If Abraham's heirs are those who are now party to a law, then that would mean that the promise is now nullified. It's basically been made null and void. The original promises were based on faith alone. Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. Abraham believes it, and God says, okay, I'm crediting you with righteousness, and you will receive these promises in a day to come. But now, if they're part of a law, the law says, oh, wait wait a minute, you can't have those things unless you complete certain works of law. That would mean that the earlier promise is no longer of any effect. Let me use a simple example to illustrate what Paul is arguing here. Imagine I promised my son $100 for his birthday, and he believes my word, and he looks forward to receiving that gift. I told him that this is the blessing that he will receive, and it has no conditions on it. It's a pledge of my own to him. By my word alone, he expects to receive it. But what if I come back to him later, and then I add that he can have the $100 only if he keeps his room clean? Well, between you and me, that means it's literally impossible at that point. But... But what I've done is my earlier promise is no longer in effect. Do you see that? 
He's no longer assured of receiving the money simply by my word. Now he has to obey my rule if he wants to receive what I'm offering him. So that new law has nullified my earlier promise. Paul says, if that's how God's covenants worked, then it would have had a profound effect. In verse 15, he says, the law always brings about wrath. What he means is, laws are always a cause for accusation. They do not make us do right things. That's not why we have law. If that's ever been your thought, that laws exist to make sure everybody does the right thing, check it out. It's not happening, right? It's not working. Laws don't do that. They only expose us when we fail to live in the right way. A law has no power to create righteousness. Its only power is to reveal unrighteousness. So when I added that rule for my son, what I did was introduce the possibility, if not probability, of his failure, and then as a result, his condemnation under that law. I now have a possibility of walking into his room and saying, your room's not clean, there goes your hundred bucks. That would be his condemnation. I did not increase the chance of him receiving the money by adding that law. I greatly decreased his chance of getting that money. So where no law exists, Paul says, there is no chance of a violation. So before I added that law, as I might, you might call it, or that rule for my son, there was no chance he wouldn't get the money because it was based entirely on my faithfulness and we're assuming for the moment that I am trustworthy. So there was literally nothing he could do to ruin it. I guess he could have died before his birthday, but you know we're not going to be silly about it. The point is, in his normal day-to-day, he could not have avoided receiving it because I never connected the receiving of that blessing to anything that he does, any part of his life, any behavior. I just said, I'm going to do it. So that is to say that without law, there can be no violation. And without violation, there is nothing standing in the way of receiving the promises of God. That's the difference between works and grace. In the first situation, my son was looking forward to a reward. He had no reason to fear. He didn't have to labor to obtain it. It was all grace. In the second situation, just because I added one rule... He had little hope for a reward. He lived under the burden of a constant effort, and yet he had no way to escape it. And and I realize when you're talking about cleaning your room, it all seems a bit trivial, and it is, but it's just the example. If you now take all of that and move it into the real life of the law given through Moses and all that it required, you just see it magnified. One is a blessing, one is a curse. So it was with the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. In the case of the Abrahamic covenant, God only asked Abraham to believe in the promise, and on that basis, the promise was assured. From that point forward, nothing could stop it from coming to Abraham and his heirs, those who repeat his faith. Its fulfillment is not connected to any behavior. And Paul now explains from verse 16, he says, For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now Paul starts 16 with, for this reason. Here's what he's saying. For this reason, the blessings of righteousness were to come by faith, in the way of the Abrahamic covenant, and not by works in the Mosaic covenant. And the reasons he's referring to are everything he's talked about in the chapter up to this point. So here are basically three reasons why it has to be by grace. 
First, it has to be by grace and not by works because righteousness is something credited, not earned. That was recovered at the beginning of the chapter. Secondly, it must be by grace and not by works, apart from circumcision, or we could say apart from Jewish identity, so that it could be available to both Jew and Gentile. If it had to come through a covenant that was only available to Jews, then it would be saying only Jews can be saved. So it had to be outside of that requirement. We heard earlier Abraham was promised to be a father of many nations, Paul says in verse 17. So it's clear that God intended right from the outset that what he was offering to Abraham, he was going to offer to more than just Jewish people. And so that means it has to come by some manner that is not uniquely Jewish, and faith is not uniquely Jewish. Finally, God's blessing, thirdly, must be by faith in a promise and not by law, because otherwise no one could have expected to receive it, which is what we just proved in the last part that we read. God had to make it available to us by His grace, because if it had to depend on us, none of us could get there. And then Paul says, God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which did not exist. Now, this is a very interesting transition on Paul's part into what we're doing for the rest of this chapter. Paul obviously is referring to Abraham, and in Abraham's case, we're talking about the arrival of Isaac from a dead womb. That was the content of the promise he had to believe, remember? But that statement has a double meaning. Do you sense what he's getting at in a bigger way than just Abraham's child, Sarah's womb? It refers to bringing new life to spiritually dead things. So calling into existence a faith and trust in God that did not previously exist is God's business. God's a God of resurrection. He likes to make dead things alive. And it starts in our heart. That's how Abraham stands as the ultimate proof. And this is where he ends the chapter. In showing you just how much of an example Abraham is to us for how we came to what we have. It's not just that we're modeled on him because we follow faith like he did. It's even more closely tied to him than that. Look what he does in verse 18 as he finishes the chapter. He says, in speaking of Abraham's example, he says, In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written, but that it was credited to him, but for our sakes also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So this is an extended examination on Paul's part of the faith of Abraham and how our own experience is modeled on his example. The point in this examination is to understand just how closely you're following in Abraham's footsteps, though you might not have realized it. We're not just repeating his example of faith. We're actually believing in essentially the same thing he believed in. In verse 18, Paul says, Abraham believed in hope against hope. That phrase means that Abraham had hope in something that he ought not have reason to have hope in. That is, he believed that God would create for him innumerable descendants, despite his age, the fact that his wife was so old, and they didn't have any kids. And Paul adds here that Abraham contemplated his own body. What that really means, contemplated, could be translated understood. He understood his body. So here's what this, Paul is saying. Abraham was not naive. 
Abraham was not ignorant. He understood the obvious. He knew that he, and particularly his wife, were past the age when children could be expected. He had no reason to hope for a baby. But there was God now promising that he would bring life from something dead, from his body. And Paul says, Abraham, understanding his situation, nevertheless, he didn't let the facts of the situation weaken his trust in God's promise. He looked past his situation and said, I'm going to take you at your word over what I can see and what I know. And he goes on to say, Abraham did not waver. He put no hope in his flesh to solve the problem. He placed his faith entirely in the Lord to solve his problem. He gave glory, Paul says, at being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. If you hadn't thought about it deeply enough, that's exactly how you came to where you are. You followed Abraham's footsteps in exactly that same way to obtain the righteousness that you and I have by faith. We start with receiving a promise that God will bring new life from a dead spirit. In our case, we're not so much interested in having a child come out of a dead womb. We're looking at the problem a little differently, but it's still a question of deadness becoming life. We receive a promise that God will bring new life for us, that faith in Christ means we will be born again, made spiritually new again in the likeness of Christ. Jesus told Nicodemus this idea in a different way. He said in John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now here again, this is somebody being told he has to come to life in a new way. And if he contemplated his own body, what would he say? to use the language of Abraham. Contemplating his body, Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And then Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Abraham was in that situation, similar to Nicodemus, different conversation, but same themes. When he contemplated the deadness of his body, he looked past it to the spiritual possibilities that God was offering and took him at his word, where Nicodemus obviously struggled at first with the concept. If you and I contemplated our deadness before coming to faith, our sinfulness, our rebellious hearts, how hard they were, how how our life had so much in it that did not commend us to God, then you and I would have no hope for heaven either, would we? In the face of somebody's proclamation of the gospel, what would our response be? Well, I can't get into heaven if you only knew what I had done. God knows, and I'm sure I'm not eligible. But we don't place our hope in our flesh in that way. If we come to faith, just as Abraham didn't place his trust in his wife's womb, so to speak, we likewise don't think of the problem from our own perspective. We hope against hope, putting our trust in the God who justifies the ungodly. More than that, God also promises to those who receive the new covenant that out of our dying bodies, he will bring a new eternal body that will never die again. He not only fixes the problem of a dead spirit, he also promises to fix the problem of your dying body. Paul explains that promise to us this way in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two. He said, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body, and if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So if you were to look at your own dying body, you would have no hope to live eternally. There's nowhere to put your trust 
not in your own body certainly, not in medicine, not in this world, to solve the problem of death. You know, so far the statistics of death are 100%. So what we did instead was, hearing the gospel and understanding it, we placed our hope in God's promise to raise us just as he raised Christ Jesus. So you hope again against hope that death is not the end of you. It has to be a hope against hope because in the future, as God gives you this living eternal body, you'll understand it. But on this side of it, when you think about the fact that you'll live again, it still doesn't seem tangible. We understand it intellectually, but all we can see around us is death. All we see is people go to the grave and that's it. Until we get past that problem and see it from the other side, we're truly unable to do more than hope. What explains our confidence? Intellectually, you struggle to explain that confidence to others, don't you? If they demand something of you to explain why you have such confidence in these things. Imagine Abraham trying to do the same thing. Imagine him trying to explain to someone else that he was confident that he was going to receive a son despite being 100 years old and his wife is and they don't have any kids. I mean, you have to imagine that I'm sure anyone who asked for his defense would have heard him speak of the glory of God. Paul says that in verse 20. So he would have turned to the right source and said, I trust in God to do as he's said. But in the end, there is no proof. I mean, you can't prove faith. That's the nature of the problem. His confidence was a faith that defied explanation. And that faith itself was a product of God's supernatural work in his heart. Hebrews says Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He brings us the supernatural confidence that won't allow us to waver in our faith. But now, if you heard what I've just said and you see it as Paul represented it and you understand it, then you're probably asking a question about now, or maybe it's popped into your mind at some point. What about that episode of Abraham and Hagar? While Abraham was waiting for the Lord to fulfill these promises, he takes matters into his own hands. He takes Hagar as a concubine for the purpose of producing the child that he expected that God was going to provide. He did this at the suggestion of his wife, but nevertheless, he went through with it. It would seem as though Abraham did exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying that he did here in Romans, right? It seems Abraham contemplated the weakness of his wife's body and wavered in his faith because of it and doubted God, and then he bedded down Hagar. But that's not how you understand what he did. He didn't seek for a son through Hagar because he doubted God's promises. He did it because he had faith that God was at work to produce an heir through that means. Notice Paul says Abraham was about a 100 when he speaks of him having all of this confidence. Did you notice that? But Abraham received the promise when he was 75. And it was at that time, remember, that he was declared righteous by faith. So Abraham received a promise at 75, believed it, was credited with righteousness because of his faith in that promise. And then time began to pass. Even as time passes, Abraham's confidence in that promise doesn't waver, but his patience starts to waver. That long time causes him to begin to second-guess God's timetable, to presuppose how that promise is going to be fulfilled. And then at a point, he becomes convinced, perhaps by his wife, that the child just simply was meant to come in a conventional manner, conventional for the days that he lived, conventional for what was the norms of his day. And eventually, Abraham just assumed that God intended to keep his promise to produce a son through a concubine through Hagar. And to Abraham, God was still being trustworthy and the promises were still true and the blessings no less real. They just came a different way. And in that case, he's shown to be impatient. Then, after 25 years, 
the Lord announces that now the time had come for the child of promise and that the son would come by Sarah, not by Hagar. And as you may remember, in Genesis 18.9, as the Lord visits Abraham with this news, then they said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. I've always loved that line. Why did the Lord have to get the last word there? I think that was just awesome. You know, he didn't normally do that, but I just like that. I wonder if it went on a few more verses. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. By the time you get to Genesis 18, neither Sarah nor Abraham are looking for the fulfillment of God's promise because they assume it had already been fulfilled. Right? At this point, they've got Ishmael now with them. And their assumption is that Ishmael is the promised son. That's why when they hear that there's going to be a new son, they're thinking, why would I need one at this point, God? This is kind of silly. And that's not a lack of faith in God's promise. It's a lack of perspective. It's a lack of appreciation of what God's ways were going to be in this case. They both believed the promise, and they thought they understood God's plan. So when they hear the Lord promising another son through Sarah, and Ishmael is 13 years old by this point, they couldn't understand it. They laugh at the suggestion. Abraham's puzzled by it. You didn't see that in the text I read, but that's also what you find in that chapter. He's puzzled by it. Much like a 100-year-old woman today would laugh if someone suggested she was going to have a baby, and much like an old man in that case would be very upset at the notion of it. So then God explains the plan to Abraham shortly after this chapter. And when Abraham finally understands what God is going to do, he realigns his expectations. At that point, as Paul said, he was about 100 years old. And at that point, he demonstrated his confidence in God's promise by acting at that point without wavering. First, he obeyed God by sending his beloved son Ishmael out of the house with Hagar. Not an easy thing for him to do. Secondly, in a subsequent chapter, he willingly takes his other son up to be sacrificed. So Abraham's story is so interesting, I think, because it features these contrasts of highs and lows in his life. And they're sandwiched. His best days are at the beginning and at the end. So he hopes against hope for a child at the beginning of this. And at the very end of it, he nearly sacrifices the child at God's request. And both stand as great examples of faith, particularly the latter of the two, who could do what he was asked to do. But in between those two high points, he lies about his wife rather than trusting in God to protect them while they're waiting for the promised son. I mean, after all, he's got a promise that he's going to have a son, and yet he's worried they're going to die. And he beds that other woman in an attempt to have the promised son rather than waiting patiently. So from the first moment, we're told he's trusting God to fulfill his word. And as a result, he's declared righteous from the beginning. But he doesn't walk in perfect obedience or understanding in many of those years, in that 25 years plus. His life is evidence that the journey of faith doesn't always reflect our great confidence in God for our eternal future. These are not incompatible. We may have saving faith in his promises, but we will waver at times in our obedience. 
We may assume too much about what God's plan is to work as will in our life. We may decide to take matters into our own hands. We may just decide to ignore him for a while. But our faith is intact just as our justification is. And so Paul says in verse 22, this is why God chose to declare Abraham righteous in chapter 15 of Genesis at the very start of this journey. He chose to make the declaration then, he says, for our sake, not only for Abraham's sake, but for our sake. Here's what I think he's saying. In Genesis 15, Abraham was at the beginning of that journey. His faith was childlike. He knew nothing of the future. He had no idea that God intended to make him wait a quarter of a century before he was actually going to fulfill the promises. He's already 75. He's probably thinking, I don't got much time left. But God had a plan to wait a long time. He simply heard a promise. He believed it. God credited him with righteousness for his faith. Done. And God made that credit even though he knew what was coming for Abraham. He knew the sin that Abraham was going to accumulate. He knew that Abraham was going to act impatiently. And he had already planned to cover all of that sin under that grant of justification right from the start. Abraham was credited as righteous, and his credit was a forever decree. Paul says, you need to see the order of these events in Abraham's life. You need to see that faith produces righteousness, regardless of the walk of life that may take off from that point. Like Abraham, our faith saves us from the penalty of sin, but friends, it also saves us despite our sin. So that even as we stumble like Abraham, we are credited with righteousness just as he was. And these things we share with Abraham, even as we believe in a different content of the promise, that content has fully matured now for us. He mentions that in verse 24. He says, we believed in the promise of Jesus raised from the dead. That's more than what Abraham got to know. And we have the same thing he has. Eventually, in Abraham's story... His understanding of God's plan was fully informed. And at that point, here's an interesting fact of his life, one that we also want to emulate. As he began to understand more and more of God's plan for his life, his behavior began to align more and more with his faith. I think that's one of the reasons why we have the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac in chapter 22 of Genesis. Think about it. If that story had never happened, you and I would still be debating whether Abraham even had faith. Because after his declaration of righteousness in Genesis 15, his record of obedience is not very good after that. It's almost all downhill until you get to Genesis 22, or right before that with Hagar, and releasing his son and, and releasing Hagar. So if we didn't have that account, you might assume his faith either wasn't genuine, or you might doubt that the Lord was going to be willing to actually follow through on his promise to a man like that. But then you reach that point where Abraham sends Ishmael away, and then he's ready to sacrifice his other son, Isaac, the promised son. And that becomes the moment where we have confirmation that Abraham was truly trusting in God and not in his flesh. He was willing to put the flesh of his son to death, confident that the Lord could raise him back from the dead to fulfill his promise. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews eleven seventeen. he says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God was able to raise people from the dead, from which he would also receive him back as a type. His point being that the only way he could have freely sacrificed a son, with confidence that God was still planning to bring descendants through that son, is if he assumed God would raise him from the dead after he sacrificed him. How else could God have been faithful? But it's evidence of how much faith he had in the spiritual power of God to do as he claimed. 
So how encouraging is it for those of us who depend on God's grace and yet repeat a lot of the same mistakes Abraham made in one form or another? So we know our salvation is secure despite our sin. In fact, you could say we know that all the more because of our sin. Because as Paul says in verse 25, Christ was put to death because we have so much sin. That's what we're trusting in. Someone needs to cover it. We simply can't escape from it. And just as Abraham was declared righteous at the outset by a God who knew what was coming, we were declared righteous by our faith in Christ by a God who knew what was coming in our life. Someone needed to cover it, and Jesus did. And then Paul adds at the end, but Jesus was also raised for our justification. That's an interesting phrase, a lot of debate in the literature about what that really means. What I think it means is he was raised from the dead to give us confidence that our account in heaven is truly clear. When Jesus returned to life, God brought to life that which was dead, and therefore gave us proof that he can do that for us as well. He has proven that death is not a barrier that we have to fear. When God's on your side... No one's against you. And as a result, you can be confident that the Bible's testimony to you that your faith has produced justification is a trustworthy statement because it came from the one who went to the grave and came back out of it for our sake. So as we walk by faith, we have confidence our faith has cleared our account. And we maintain our faith throughout by God's power in us. But like Abraham, you and I don't know how long this is going to go on. We don't know how long the Lord tarries. We don't know the length of our life. We don't know how many trials we're going to face. Someday our path in life may depart from the faith that's in our heart. Or every day, for that matter, in some little way. And we may start trying to work a plan ourselves. We might try to find our blessings in the wrong way. It's common for us to cling to the physical life instead of the eternal. We want what we want now as opposed to waiting for what is promised in the kingdom. But none of those mistakes change our heavenly credit of righteousness. They only prove that we need that credit all the more. That grace is even more important. So meanwhile, as you grow in your faith and as you grow in your walk and as your behaviors become more closely aligned to your faith, as a result, the Lord reveals more of himself to you, his plan for you and his word, his expectations for you, and then we live in the light of that. That's the goal. So our goal should be both to enter as Abraham entered, that is, his faith is our model, his credit will be our credit, we are then his heirs spiritually, But then we should also end our life the way he did, acting in keeping with that faith, not looking back on those sad moments in between. James, in his letter, puts it this way, James 2.20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So our faith is saving us from the first moment. But James asks, is it useful to God? Is it being useful? Are you bringing him glory by your faith? Are you bringing him a testimony through your faith? He uses Abraham's example again. He says, Abraham's faith was justified or proven, you could say, when he offered up Isaac. And his faith was working to perfect, or you could say complete, his faith. The the scriptures were finally fulfilled, those that said he was declared righteous by his faith. I think what James is saying is if you took chapter 22 out of Genesis, you wouldn't have seen the faith that we know he had. It took that maturing man to get to that point and finally align himself with the will of God entirely and understand God's plan. Then he could act in keeping with that faith, and now the world could see the faith that he claimed. It doesn't mean that's when it attached 
or when he became saved. We know Genesis 15 is where he was declared righteous. That's what God does. He declares you righteous at the beginning so that you're not worried in the meantime. But he calls you to get to the point where your life mirrors your faith. That's our goal, that our life would be a testimony to all that we claim to hold true in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these men, particularly Abraham, and the proofs they offer from their lives, Father. And not just in the sense that they are men of faith we want to emulate, Father, but I thank you even for the mistakes that they had, that you would record those in your word and work through them. For, Father, though you don't excuse sin and we don't choose to, we don't desire to to follow in that way either, but nevertheless, Father, as we do, we're thankful to know that greater men than we have done the same, but we have all needed the same grace. And that grace, Father, is by faith alone. And having it, Father, we will never lose it. And in not losing it, Father, we have great reason to live up to it. We thank you, Father, for that testimony. Let us share it with others to remove the burden of works or guilt that hold them back from knowing a loving God who has died for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.